morning. Welcome to the New Life class on a new day, a beautiful day. Hope you were able to enjoy the weather that God has given to us, blessed us with this weekend, yesterday, and maybe this afternoon, and uh, even this coming week. So, uh, welcome, and as Chris prayed, we're continuing in our series in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3, a series we're simply calling The Sojourner's Guide to a Hostile World. And last Sunday, we learned that the sojourner's life, and by the way, if you are a Christ follower, that is Peter's term for you. That's his description. That's his name for you, a sojourner in this hostile world. And we learned last Sunday that as a sojourner, uh, life is not always fair. Have you experienced that? Uh, I'm sure you have at some level, some form. Life is not always fair for a sojourner. In fact, Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when your living faithfully leads to unfair treatment. And then he tells us exactly in three areas of life. Don't be surprised where this happens. Then when you live faithfully as a sojourner, don't be surprised that unfair treatment uh, results in the, in the workplace, in society, and in marriage. So how should we respond to unfair treatment in these three areas of life? Society, the workplace, and marriage. And that's the question we answered last Sunday. And God's answer through Peter in all three of these areas is summarized in one word. And that one word, anybody remember what it is? What is it? Submission. Yes, it's a word we choke on. Uh, We even resist because we are rebels by nature. And yet we saw Peter calls us to submit to all civil authorities in society for the Lord's sake so that we might make God known in a hostile world. Now, that was in society. Today, we're going to look in another situation and specifically the workplace. So what do you do? Here's the question. It's in your notes there. What do you do when life as a sojourner leads to unjust suffering in the workplace? In other words, what do you do when your boss is a jerk? Uh, There's an article by Peter Baron Stark that came out just here recently. And uh, the name of the article is Six Things Not to Do When Your Boss is a Jerk. Writes bad bosses. Chances are good that at least once in each of our careers we are challenged with working for a bad boss. These bosses are bad for our careers, our health, and our work-life balance. Unfortunately, bad bosses are just a part of the real world, and we have to find a way to make it work. Specific examples we have heard are that their boss. Here's the examples of bad bosses. Now is a micromanager. Is not trustworthy or doesn't keep promises. He gave a poor rating on uh, the employee's performance review. He gave no raise or not enough of a raise. Does not stand behind decisions made by employees. Is moody, is a know-it-all and does not listen. Has questionable ethics, is disrespectful. And he goes on and he writes, So what if you work with a boss that does one of these bad behaviors? Worse, what if you work with a boss who does all of these behaviors? He's a real jerk. Well, here's what not to do, he writes in the article. All right. He, in fact, he even explains. It has been our experience that the employees who exhibit the behaviors listed below tend to be fired or managed out of the organization. 
And if that is your goal, here is your prescription for success, all right? So you ready for this, Shelly? At Hallmark, if you have a bad boss, here's what to do if you want to be fired or managed out of the Go ahead, go head-to-head with your boss in defiance of your boss's directives and goals. All right, number two, bypass your boss and go directly to your boss's boss or human resources with your concerns. Number three, speak negatively about your boss to coworkers or other leaders in the organization. Number four, and this is a good one, this is what we all do or we want to do, post nasty things about your boss in an email, your Facebook profile, or some other electronic form of communication. Number five, repeatedly complain to your boss about topics you feel they have not addressed, your workload, specific projects, other team members, your wages, your lack of promotion. Or last, he says, tell your boss they are micro, they're a micromanager or some other piece of nondescript feedback conveying your displeasure with their leadership skills. Now, here's what's in it. He goes on. He says, each of these behaviors provide a fast track for employees being fired or managed out of the organization. And he says, recently, my 20-year-old son, Baron, called me and told me he was going to drop his English class. When I asked him why, he told me that he had an awful professor. I responded, Baron, the reason they give you bad professors in college is to help prepare for bad bosses when you get a job. At work, you do not get to pick your boss. It becomes your job to learn to deal with all types of leaders in all types of organizations. Wouldn't it be great if one of your God-given rights was to be given a great leader, a great boss? And perhaps you're here and you have a great boss. All right, Kim and Chris are going, yeah. Just kidding. All right, but perhaps you're here and that is not your situation right now at work. Your boss is not so great. In fact, he leans more on the jerk side. Maybe uh, that's not your situation, but you know what that's like. And if you continue to work long enough, I'm sure you'll come into a boss that leans to the jerk side. So how should we respond to unjust suffering in the workplace then? Well, here's the overarching big idea, Peter's answer. We should submissively endure unjust suffering by entrusting ourselves to God. Look what Peter writes in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Look what he says. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. And then dropping down to verse 19, it says, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, Peter addresses this section of verses to, quote, servants. The word refers to household servants, but these were not just domestic employees. They were slaves. So what exactly does submission and suffering look like in our culture, in our workplace today? After all, we are not, quote, slaves to our employers, although we may feel like it at times. Well, to find the right application, we need to keep in mind Peter's original audience, who he wrote these these letters to, and his primary goal for why he's writing. It's been estimated that in Peter's day, slaves made up more than half of the total population of the major cities in the Roman Empire. One author gives this historical perspective. He says, people became slaves by being captured in wars or born into slave households. 
those facing economic hardships might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Many slaves lived miserably, particularly those who served in the mines. Other slaves, however, served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own slaves as a slave. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than the master. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters, and hence they had no independent existence. William Barclay, another commentator, adds this insight. He says, it would be wrong to think that the lot of slaves was always wretched and unhappy, and that they were always treated with cruelty. Many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family. But one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In Roman law, a slave was not a person but a thing. And he had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. And for that reason, there could be no such thing as justice where a slave was concerned. Now, this was the reality of the first century world when Peter wrote these words of submission and suffering to slaves, or the term he uses is servants here. Now, does this mean Peter is pro-slavery? Of course not. Please do not read that into this text. Peter is not saying that slavery is good. He is keenly aware of the abuses slavery promoted. But we have to go back and understand Peter's goal and what he's writing here. His goal is not to criticize the social institution of slavery in that day or to advocate even its overthrow. His goal, Peter's goal in writing this, for the believing slaves was not even released from slavery, but to simply live a Christ-like life as a slave. You're a believer now. You're a sojourner in this hostile world, and yet your occupation is you're a slave. So how should you live? That's Peter's goal. That's what he's writing to us. Why? Because as the gospel spread across the Roman Empire, the vast majority of these early believers were slaves. And remember, slaves at that point in time in history, they had no rights at all. So Christian slaves lived in a state of this continual tension. Christ has set me free, but I'm a slave on earth. So what should I do, especially when my new life in Christ leads to unjust suffering? Now, in most cases, freedom was not an option for these slaves. And so the real issue here is not about slavery. It's about any unpleasant, unfair situation in your life that you cannot easily change. Peter's words apply To anyone, therefore, who is stuck in a job that they don't like. His words here apply to anyone who is stuck in a situation of unjust suffering. What do you do then? Well, Peter doesn't stress, and understand this from the beginning, he does not stress the rights of the slave. Or in our case, the rights 
of the employee. Instead, he emphasizes the responsibility as sojourners in the workplace. Now, I know, that's just like blowing our minds, because right now, we're consumed by the mindset and the worldview of our culture. And this is counter-culture. In fact, if you haven't noticed lately, in the last three to five years, our culture honors victimhood over servanthood and responsibility. That's what gets promoted in the media. That's their narrative. That's what is honored. In fact, if you're not a victim of something or someone, you're not important. You're not significant. And so everybody wants to claim to be a victim of something or someone. And yet Peter just discards that here. That is not his focus, not his emphasis. His emphasis is, I'm a sojourner. I've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christ follower. Now what is your responsibility in the workplace? That's his focus. And he has a reason behind it, as we'll see. So, let's look at it. The sojourner's life of suffering in the workplace. The mandate. Here's the mandate. It's simply this. Be submissive. Be submissive to your boss at work. Peter begins with the mandate again in verse 18 when he writes, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear or all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So, this command was necessary because believing slaves... Listen, here was the mindset. They often assumed something. That since they had become free in Christ, they also had this right now to become free from their masters. And Peter writes this to correct that thinking. Peter says just the opposite, in fact. He says the standing duty of slaves or servants is to submit themselves to the authority of their masters. Now, as we apply this principle in the workplace, it's Also, as if Peter anticipates our rebuttal, because we all have that rebuttal going on in our minds probably even now, and it's right here. But what if my boss is a jerk? What do I do then? Well, here's Peter's answer. He says, submit to the boss who is gracious and submit to the boss who is harsh. That's his answer. Now, let's be honest. It's relatively easy to be submissive if you have a boss who's gracious, who's Mother Teresa-like. And if you're working for some marvelous saint-like boss, everything is hunky-dory, it's great, you enjoy going to work for the most part, you're almost happy to submit. But what if your boss is a jerk? Or as Peter says, what if your boss is harsh? So what does it mean to submit to a boss who's harsh? Well, this word harsh, it's an interesting word. It it literally means curved or crooked. It's, It's the word from which we get our English word scoliosis. And it refers to one's moral perversity in deviation from what is right and just. In other words, what Peter is saying is there are some employee bosses, masters out there who are so morally twisted that they are intentionally unreasonable and unfair regarding perhaps pay, working conditions, expectations, time off, etc. So, do you have a boss who is a jerk? 
Do you have a supervisor who is fair? Do you have to deal with a manager who is unreasonable, perhaps even morally twisted? And our natural tendency, if we do, is what? It's all of our natural tendencies. It's to fight against that. It's to fight back against unreasonable and unfair treatment. But Peter's answer is, as long as we're under the authority of that boss, our attitude should be submissive. He says, be submissive to your boss at work. Be submissive to your masters with all fear or all respect. Now, I know that's not the answer we want to hear. And it's definitely not the answer you'll hear in the break room when you're talking about your boss among your co-workers. But it's God's answer to us as sojourners in a hostile world. Now, here's the motive for it. All right, so that's the mandate. Here's the motive. It's to please God. It's to please God at work. Look what Peter writes in verse 19. He says, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Our motivation for submission in the workplace is seen in this little phrase. This is commendable. In fact, Peter mentions that twice. This phrase literally means this is grace. It means this finds favor with God or this pleases God. And whether it was a slave in Peter's day enduring unjust treatment or it's an employee in our day enduring an unjust boss, God is pleased, Peter says. This is commendable. This is grace. God is pleased. Now, just to make sure we don't miss that point, Peter now asks a rhetorical question in verse 20. You've got to love it. And this is, again, why I love Peter, because he deals with reality. So look at it. Look what he writes in verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So taking it when you don't deserve it. There's no credit, Peter says, in taking it when you are in the wrong and deserve it. But, he says, we please God when we submissively take it, even though we are in the right and we don't deserve it. Now, I think what Peter means here is that God delights in behavior that reflects reliance on his grace when unjust suffering comes our way. Um. Think of it in this way. When we look to God for strength and courage and hope in a time of suffering, and as a result, we endure that suffering, God sees it as a tribute to his grace at work in your life. God is shown in that and through that. And when God is shown, God is pleased. For example... If you are a hardworking, diligent, prompt, productive, faithful employee working for a boss 
who is a belligerent, stubborn, unfair, and morally twisted. And if you endure that situation, well, Peter says, that pleases God. And when you endure, Peter is also saying, in this one phrase, the idea here is, when you endure, instead of, and the idea of endure is you stay under it, instead of running out from under it. That's the idea of endurance. So when you endure that situation, your workplace, your boss that you don't like, he's a jerk. When you endure, you also now, you put on display, that is through your suffering, you demonstrate to your coworkers what the grace of God is all about. I also think it means we experience the grace of God in a powerful way as we endure. So we put it on display and we also experience it in a personal way. Can you see why the sojourner's life of suffering is so radical? I mean, this is so radical in our rights-driven culture at work. And so unlike our coworkers, we are more concerned then with getting the praise from God. God is pleased and we are about the raise from the boss. We understand we don't work for the credit or the prestige or the salary or the perks. Rather, we work for the glory of God. We're here to make him known, which brings us to the mission. The mission. And our mission is to make God known at work through suffering. Peter gives our suffering now in the workplace. Listen to me. He gives it eternal significance. When he says in the verse part of verse 21, look at it. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us. Why did Christ suffer? What was his purpose for suffering? Christ was fulfilling the mission of his heavenly father. Listen, when Jesus came to this earth and he lived here, he was making God known to the world. He was demonstrating God's love, demonstrating God's grace and forgiveness through his suffering and ultimately his death on the cross. And Peter says, for to this you were called. You said, called to what? I didn't know I was called to anything. Oh, yeah, you're called. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a sojourner, you are called. And here's what you're called to, to make God known through suffering. This is our mission in life. That's the reason you're at your job. It's to make God known. Now, I know in America, especially, we think the reason I'm at my job is only to make money. That's what's at the forefront of our minds. But Peter comes in and he challenges that thinking. He says, yes, you may be at a job to make money to support your family, but that is not the only reason you're at your job. In fact, there is a greater, greater eternal reason you're at your job. And it is not so much to make money, but rather it is to make God known. And when you go to work with that mindset, 
It changes everything. And so in the morning, sometimes we just need a perspective adjustment, a perspective realignment. All right, yes, I'm, I, one of the reasons I go to this job is so I can make money and support my family, support the Lord's work, support the church, support what, all these things. We understand that. We live in a society that this is how we operate. And Peter's not denying that, but he's saying there's something greater here at stake. There's an eternal significance behind this. And so we don't go to work simply to make money. We go to work to make God known. That is our mission as sojourners in this hostile world. All right? So the nature of our calling as sojourners, notice it in your notes. When you live faithfully, though, you will suffer unjustly. But it is through our suffering that we make God known. Now, Suffering unjustly. Uh, That is not a coincidence for Christians. In fact, that is our calling as Christians. And so please, just for a moment, let this sink in. When you live for God and when you do right according to the word of God, you will be criticized at times. You will be judged at times. When you stand up for Christ, things will not necessarily get better. Oftentimes, they will get worse. In other words, when you live faithfully, which is what Peter calls us to, that's what we saw in the very first lesson, live faithfully as sojourners, we will suffer for that in this world in which we live. Yet so many of us act as though such mistreatment, when we live faithfully, when we live for God and seek to please God and do right, is absolutely intolerable. We scream out, maybe not verbally, but in our hearts, this is wrong. I've been violated. I can't believe I'm being treated so unfairly. And there arises within us this overwhelming emotional force that we have right and a duty to set things straight and to get vindication all because we've been done wrong that is the culture we live in we live in a culture that is so quick to defend ourselves our national motto is i've got my rights we're quick to get mad we're quick to fight back we're quick to answer back we're quitting to threaten a lawsuit and even as christians we'll spend more time searching for a lawyer's phone number than searching for scripture verses on suffering and self-restraint So let me ask you, how many of us live in the knowledge that this is our calling? This is our mission in life to be misunderstood even, to be mistreated even for living faithfully as a sojourner. And if you're being treated unfairly at work, Peter is saying to you, look at it as an opportunity to make God known by your response to it all. You ask, well, how? How does this enduring unjust suffering make God known? Think about it. If you yield your rights and you, quote, take it in a Christ-like manner, well, people are going to notice that because that's not the norm in our culture. And they're going to wonder why doesn't he or she fight for 
his or her rights. And you'll have opportunity to share the grace of God that is at work in your life. Believe me, living this way is so radical, is so contrary to our fallen human nature. And if we will triumph over our fallen nature, and if we will live at this level that Peter's calling us to, we are making God known. We are making the power of God's grace at work in our lives known. This calling, this mission of making God known through our suffering belongs to every person in this room who trusts Jesus as their Savior and Lord. In fact, Peter says, Jesus, now this is radical, get load of this. Peter now points to Jesus and he says, listen, he's your model. He's your example to follow in this. And he holds up Jesus Christ in all that he endured in this world and says, that's what you're following after. That's your model. So look at it. The suffering of Christ is my example to follow at work. Peter concludes, continues in verse 21. He says, for to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. When Christ suffered for us, he gave us an example of how we are to live faithfully. An example of how we are to respond to unjust suffering in the workplace. And this example then is, is expounded upon for us in verses 22 and 23. In verse 23, Peter writes, Who committed, speaking of Jesus still, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. The point of that is to show us that Christ was doing what was right here on this earth. He did not deserve to suffer. He deserved it. Do you realize Christ deserved to suffer less than anybody who's ever lived on the face of the earth? And then verse 23 shows us Christ's response to his unjust suffering. When Peter writes, who, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, that is just that's amazing because Jesus could have stood up for his rights on this earth. Right. We know that. In fact, he could have called down legions of angels to strike down his enemies. That was within his power to do so. And yet he didn't. So following the example of Christ at work means this. Let me summarize it for you. It's in your notes. It means I won't retaliate when I'm mistreated unjustly. I won't retaliate. This is our example to follow, Peter says. This means I won't retaliate. I won't seek to hurt back. I won't seethe with bitterness and resentment because I'm not allowed to retaliate. Instead, the idea is I will endure unjust suffering. In Peter's vernacular, I will take it even though I'm in the right and I don't deserve it. And I will take it because my calling is to follow Christ's example and my mission is to make God known. Now, make no mistake, this is not an easy example to follow. I think we all understand that. This is not easy. In fact, the sojourner's life of suffering is so radical, how is it even possible to live this out. Well, notes in your notes. It's only possible as we trust God 
who judges righteously. As we trust God. Now, don't miss this. Because this is the key to living the so generous life of suffering. This right here. This is the key. The overarching answer is found in verse 19 when Peter writes, For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So how do we submit to unfair suffering? It's possible, Peter says, when we are, and he uses this phrase, when we are, quote, conscience, conscious toward God. That's how it's possible. Conscious toward God. And you're like, what does that mean? All right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meditate. I'm conscious for God. All right, what's the, what's the idea here? That is, the idea of being conscious toward God is you take God into account of your situation. Uh, we include God in the equation in our lives. We factor God into it. We look to God and not to our circumstances. We take God seriously, as seriously as we take our unjust suffering. But let's be more specific. What should we think when we look to God in such situations of unjust suffering? In other words, what should we believe with our hearts about God in the middle of this, these circumstances? And the answer is given in verse 23. Do you see it there? Speaking of Jesus, who... When he, that is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So, step back from it, and here it is. Consider Christ's focus during his suffering. What did Christ focus on? Jesus, Peter says, kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. That is Christ handed over to God the whole situation, including himself, his abusers, his injustice, and his suffering. In other words, Christ trusted it all into God's hand as the one who would settle the matter justly someday. Like Jesus, we need to pray. I will not carry the burden of revenge. I will not carry the burden of sorting out motives. I will not carry the burden of self-pity. I will not carry the burden of bitterness. Instead, I will hand it all over to God who is the perfect judge. Does this mean that we don't or should not care about justice while we're living here in this hostile world? Does this mean justice doesn't matter? Of course not. Listen, when, when you endure unjust suffering because of conscience toward God, you are not saying justice doesn't matter. So do not read in to what Peter is not saying. 
Instead, you are saying and you believe with all your heart that God is the final judge and he will settle accounts justly and he will have the last word. And this is why I can defer to him. This is why I do defer to him. This is why I hand it all over to him. And I do so confidently. As Peter says, I entrust myself and my whole situation and the justice that needs to be done. I hand it over to you, Lord. I hand it to you, God. So here's the bottom line. Here it is. Wrap it up. Wrap up the whole lesson right here. Here it is. The sojourner's life of unjust suffering is not an indifference to justice. It is a way of saying that the safest place for justice and getting my rights vindicated is in God's hands and not my hands. So how should we respond to unjust suffering? Especially when everything within you cries out, No! It isn't right. It's not fair. And the answer again is to do what Jesus did. You hand it over to God. God sees it. God judges justly. Nothing escapes his notice. He will settle all accounts more fairly than we ever could. Or even what our judicial system in our country can. So lay it down. Let it go. This is your calling. In some ways, so much of this comes down to, what do you believe about God? And are you willing to trust him with your life and your situation? See, the reason we hesitate and we are reluctant to hand over a situation that we don't think is fair is because in our heart of hearts, we don't trust God will do the right thing with it. Or ultimately, we don't think he will make it right in the end. And so we, we, we remain in control of it, or at least we think we're in control of it, because we want to make it right. We want justice to be served. And we don't trust God enough to give it over to him. But I'm telling you, God is more just than we ever can be in what our world and human beings will ever be. And so release it into his hands. God will make all things right. This is our calling as sojourners living in a hostile world. It is to follow Christ's example and endure unjust suffering. Why? Because our mission is to make God known. And when we endure unjust suffering, we are making known the grace of God at work in our lives. When one pastor preached on this passage... He commented, and I quote his words, This is not merely a rule to be followed. It's a miracle to be experienced, a grace to be received. It's a promise to be believed. So do you believe? Do you trust that God sees every wrong done to you? 
that he knows every hurt, that he is righteous, and that he will settle all accounts with his perfect justice. This is what it means to be conscious toward God in the midst of unjust suffering. And if you believe this, then you will hand it over to God, and you will experience a miracle and receive his grace. And it all boils down to this. Remember God, be conscious of God, and trust God. I would encourage you, as we pray, to pray this prayer. If you're in the middle of a situation that is unfair, it's unjust, and you are suffering in this, I encourage you to pray this prayer here. Lord, this is a hard moment for me. I'm having a tough time today. And here I am again. I'm dealing with this unreasonable person, this boss who is treating me unfairly. It's so, Lord, help me. I commit myself and the situation to you. I give you my struggle. Protect me and provide the wisdom and self-control I need. Help me to endure this grief and suffering so that I might make the power of your grace known. In Jesus' name, I pray. And with that, we are dismissed. Next Sunday, you will have the pleasure of hearing a missionary guest. So come back next Sunday.